Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right. The Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. I think we all get that. The question now that I hear from a lot of investors is how aggressively will they be doing? Are we talking 25 basis points at a time, 50 basis points? How much in aggregate? Let's check in with somebody who kind of does this stuff for a living. David Riley, Chief Investment Strategist for Blue Bay Asset Management. David, the U.S. Federal Reserve is in a hiking mode. How do you envision it playing out? Hi, Paul. Well, I, I actually think the Fed is more likely to have a hiking cycle rather like the one that we had in 94, 95. And you know, that's when um, the Fed you know, was actually very aggressive. It hiked rates by 300 basis points in the course of um, uh, 12 months. It kind of got ahead of uh, inflation uh, issues. The economy did slow down but it didn't go into recession. And so, you know, the Fed engineered a, a, a soft landing for the economy, retained its kind of um, anti-inflation or reinforced its anti-inflation credentials. So I actually think that's a more likely path now for the Fed because it is behind the inflation curve than this kind of, you know, uh, model that a lot of people look at, which is 2004 to six, where it was a very gradual, very predictable 25 basis point hike uh, at each meeting. What does this mean then for positioning? Uh, Paul and I have talked a lot about duration. Our 100-year bond is down about 50% as duration does not do well in higher rates. How are you thinking then about what this means for positioning in a portfolio? Yeah, so I, I do think that, um, you know, we've, we've got a lot now priced in. I still think the market's underpricing where the Fed is actually going to go up. So in terms of positioning in our fixed income portfolios, you know, we would still have over the medium term a um, short duration bias when it comes to um, U.S. rates. We'd still rather express that at the shorter end than at the um, longer end, because as you've been reporting, we're you know, seeing a pretty uh, dramatic flattening of the Treasury curve. And, it, and it's quite, I mean, we've, we've also had a sort of intraday, um, the 10 twos invert uh, as, as, as well. So, and, and then within credit, I think it makes sense to be thinking about kind of moving up in uh, quality, uh, getting access in a high inflation environment to real assets. So maybe taking some exposure through, you know, securitized uh, mortgage uh, securities as well. All right, David, I'm going for yield. I'm ready to take some risk. I'm going looking at the high yield market, maybe even the leverage loan market. What are some of the sectors I should be looking at right now? Yeah, I mean, the sectors that have done you know, pretty well within the high yield uh, and, and, and leverage loan space, um, as you would expect, has been um, uh, energy. Um, I think the other areas where I would go would be, and we have been going, is some of the more defensive sectors. So um, consumer staples, um, healthcare. Um, there's not so much tech, but you know what you want to get, I think, is exposure to sectors or those names which can absorb those higher input prices, uh, those higher input uh, input costs that are coming from, you know, higher gasoline, higher oil prices, and energy prices more more generally, and have the you know the pricing power to um, absorb that. 
where I would avoid would be things like sort of uh, some of the industrials, you know, auto parts suppliers. Margins are pretty low. They're going to get, I think, quite um, squeezed in terms of those uh, margins. And, and more recently, I've actually been shifting from loans back into high yield um, bonds because you know we've had a lot of repricing or higher rate risk is now in 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 high yield uh, uh, bond prices. Uh, well, in terms of leveraged loans, we're going to see significant increase in, in in the cost of that funding for a lot of uh, for a lot of companies. So a bit more bias towards more defensive sectors, higher margin, um, and also to you know starting shift from from loans into uh, high yield. I am curious when you think about credit, how much of that is a sort of a fundamental strong economy call versus shorter modified duration than investment grade and it's just a, a shorter duration call yeah no, that's, that's, that's a fair point um i mean i i do think when you look at it's interesting when you look at the credit market more more broadly um including in particular within the high yield market i mean we're just not seeing uh, sort of really meaningful signs signs of, of 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 cracks, and I do think that you know the liquidity position of of companies, including within the high yield market, is actually still very strong. I mean, they built up huge, you know, pretty big um, cash balances. Um, leverage is actually now below where it was um, just prior to the um, uh, pandemic. So I think you know default rates. You know, fundamental kind of credit risk is actually looking still um, uh, pretty good. So I, I still think it makes sense, as, as you've suggested, um, to have a bias towards higher yielding because you've got that kind of spread cushion against uh, higher rates and it's a shorter duration asset. So, David, you know, like the rest of the world, we're watching what's happening in the Ukraine. And, but for Americans, there's a little bit of, yeah, but it's over there. But over there is in the backyard of Europe. How's the European credit markets reacted to the geopolitical issues taking place, the war taking place in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting because, I mean, it's certainly the case that European credit has, um, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, underperformed um, U.S. Uh, credit. It, it sold off initially much harder, and then it's come back um, or tightened uh, less uh, quickly. And I think that makes sense because... You, you, you know, I mean, I think the you know economic and the geopolitical risks are much greater for Europe than they are for the United States in terms of the Russia um, uh, Russia Ukraine uh, crisis. And you know, gas prices is a huge issue for 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 Europe. Even though we've seen you know some um, dec- recent decline or, or drop in uh, European natural gas prices, they're still you know five six times where they were a year ago. And you know, talking to some of our analysts who've been talk- you know analysing companies and talking to some of those European companies, they're feeling some companies are starting to feel the squeeze from this increase in um, input prices. And we've just seen you know German inflation at levels we've not seen since. Uh, the early mid uh, 1970s, and right. that's painful for consumers, but it's painful for businesses as well. Yep, good stuff. Hey, David, thanks so much for joining us. David Riley, Chief Investment Strategist for Blue Blay Asset Management. We got uh, Michael McKee, Bloomberg Economics Editor. Here's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio after chatting with Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin. Uh, again, he seems like a reasonable business base Fed. Uh, president 
came across pretty reasonable to me. But rates are going up, and they're going to do what it takes. Rates are going up. They're going to do what it takes. Uh, he's a little less convinced, I think, that rates have to go as high as some people are suggesting. And he's open to a 50 basis point move, but okay. not saying it definitely has to happen. He's not a voter this year, but in terms of his opinion, because I think he... Uh, maybe gets a view from the district, from the CEOs in his district, that, as you heard, things may be slowing down a little bit. Not a whole lot, but these things tend to gain momentum as you go along. You had a really good question about sort of the wage spiral and maybe that self-fulfilling prophecy of if inflation's higher, costs are rising, you need higher wages to keep up with that. And then companies have the ability to raise costs again because they know that workers are getting paid more. Is that a legitimate concern? Well, it's been the Fed's concern all along. They don't want people to start thinking that inflation is embedded and going to stay that way because then they keep asking for more money. Tom was suggesting that uh, we might be seeing the early signs of that slowing down because companies did raise prices and now people are uh, they had to raise their wages to keep up with it and to get people back into the labor force but people may at this point have gotten the raise they need and if gasoline prices in particular come down soon they may not need to continue that but it is their biggest fear I just had my year in review. I did not experience any wage spiraling anywhere. I mean, maybe inching is maybe the, the better thing. And you're going to be complaining when you fill up that tank in exactly. San Francisco this weekend. Exactly right. All right, so this Federal Reserve, um, is there still an argument to made that they're behind the curve? Um, I'm not even sure what that means, but it's certainly something people toss out there. But it feels like my Federal Reserve is, is moving here. Uh, well, they are moving. They've moved once, and it looks like they're going to speed it up. Uh, behind the curve is a sort of uh, matter of where you sit and, and what your view is. Uh, people on trading desks are always going to look for a reason that uh, they didn't lose money. Uh, something else made them lose yep. money. Uh, so, you, you know, some people are going to say they're behind the curve, some not. Uh, the Fed is trying to figure things out in a world that's different because of the pandemic from the past. So that's that's one of the troubles that they have. And now it's going to be interesting to watch as I asked Tom, you know, how do, how do you know you've done enough or done too much when policy works with a lag and we're in a situation like we are now? Speaking of curves, I've been reading a lot of notes recently that, of course, sometimes we really look at the three-month tenure. But if the Fed is so behind the curve, the two-year tenure is maybe doing a better job of giving us more of a realistic view. Is the Fed looking at yield curves? What do you make of those comments, Mike? No, I think the people who are looking at yield curves are the people in the media when the yield curve gets close to inversion. He's looking or at inverts, me. It's, uh, when it inverted, I got very uh, excited it's, yesterday. Uh, you got very excited, and for so all, tw all 23 seconds it was inverted, <laughs> you uh, you were just you know, ecstatic. Um, the Fed is uh, – the yield curve tells you that at some point you think that the economy is going to slow down. The problem is there's no timing on it. It could be 18 months, two years ahead of time. And is it really connected to the yield curve or is it something else that comes along? Uh, the Fed looks at the three-month, 18-month forwards because that tells you sort of where they are now and where the market expects them to be in a year and a half, which is a little bit more sensible in terms of what, what you're trying to figure out. 
but it makes a nice conversation piece and a question to ask people. <laughs> All right, Michael McKee, thank you so much for joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studio, uh, giving us a summary of your discussion uh, just moments ago with Richmond Fed President Thomas Barkin. Uh, he is uh, Richmond, the home of the University of Richmond Spiders, my alma mater. Right now, let's check in with Michael uh, Hans, uh, Hans, CIO of Clarfeld Citizens Private Wealth. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, we look at these markets and kind of, you know, not much going on today, but we've heard, certainly had volatility so far in the year 2022. Where do we go from here? What are you telling your clients? Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, volatility is likely going to persist for, you know, the better part of this year. And I don't think it's a surprise to anyone. I think there's a fair amount of overall economic uncertainty. And then you throw a geopolitical event into the mix that exacerbates you know, the, the challenges that the Fed has. And it's no surprise that we're seeing markets uh, you know, in flux. What, what we're expressing at this point in time as it relates to our portfolios is you know, very little in the way of, of meaningful changes. Uh, as a reactionary function to to what's been going on. However, we are we are thinking about the outlook, uh, you know, given given where things are moving. But you know, the the forefront uh, conversations are let's not react too aggressively to the geopolitical aspect, and let's keep our attention on to the path of the economy. Do and, you have to react though to some things. of the inflationary pressures underway? So I, I think the the elements around inflationary pressures. You know, in our mind, is, is, have been in in, uh, in position uh, over time, right? And so, to be underweight duration and fixed income has, has been important. And you know, like that's a key theme that we've outlined over the course of the last year or so. Because it, again, it, it, it's difficult to to position in an environment where your compensation was just very limited. That dynamic is changing now. I don't, we, we do not feel we're in a position yet where we want to play offense and and get long duration yet. I think that's a meaningful positioning that we've had going into this, and I, and I think that's, that's been a clear benefit. Uh, I think over time, the interesting dynamic is that duration will become more interesting as everybody is most negative and pessimistic on the space, and that's, that's actually been increasing. So the outlook for fixed income is becoming more constructive, while this recent rally off, off of the lows in the equity market, uh, again, I, I think it, it just dictates that there's going to be a little bit uh, less potential upside the balance of this year as we work through uh, market market you know, fluctuations. Hey, Michael, I've I've heard and read the recession word more and more over the last two to three weeks. Is that something that's in your outlook? Not not for this year, and and I think it's it's really interesting. You had prior guests outlining, and and I think you know, you know, Mike McKee mentioned that it's the media that's heavily focused on the yield curve. I think the yield curve is is not necessarily the indicator; it's more of a symptom of what is going on. And that, and from the timing perspective, you know, the data is, you know, very clear that it's a, a difficult mechanism to utilize to make significant adjustments, right? It, it's more of a, a coincident factor of what's going on. Our clients are also focused on that, and that's certainly something that comes up, but it's not the first time. So the education around this is something that gives us, cons you know, it raises flags, right? You you look at a variety of other metrics, but I, I think we keep on coming back to the fact that. We, we have reestablished trend economic growth. Uh, there, there are good stabilizing factors mm. in play this year, specifically balance sheets. Right? Is stagflation a word consumer. that's coming up more? Stagflation is, is absolutely coming, but I, I, I think that's also, I, I think we're looking at historical timeframes, and, and again, these, these are the types of 
words that, that come into play, but in the environment we're in, we're actually looking at above-trend economic growth this year. The first quarter is going to likely come in a little bit softer, but if we have above-trend growth for the balance of this year, you know, it, it, does, it does beget the need to have, again, continued equity exposure in a portfolio. The, the one distinction that I, that I think is really important that you don't, I don't think we hear enough in, in the media is that investing is not a binary game. Right, and, and that, that all too often and is, is what we really emphasize with our clients. We really thoughtfully construct portfolios that are highly diversified. And I think what's really important now is the context of the last couple of years and this entire cycle, you know, and, and even coming into this year before we had market downturns and when markets were at all-time highs, our, our major point to clients was resetting a level of expectation that we don't anticipate the rates of returns right. to continue in the manner in which they did. Last year was that bailed out by a well above historical norm equity market. Yep. Right? And that masked some of the challenges within fixed income. Our outlook today has actually improved uh, in, right. in a meaningful manner given where interest rates are. Interesting. All right. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts there. Michael Hans, CIO of Clarfeld Citizens Private Wealth Management. They're based in Terrytown, New York. And Michael's got a green dot next to his name, which is good to see. Looking at uh, Bitcoin here, we can do that because Tom Keen is not here. Uh, Bitcoin's off just about 1% here, still uh, above 47,000. It feels like it's been in this fairly tight trading range. Maybe that's just me, but you know, we see the moves of 1% to 2% every day, but it's still kind of in this range. Uh, let's bring on Katie Greifeld. She's a cross-asset reporter and Bloomberg Quick Take co-anchor. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, crypto, what are you looking at today, Katie? Well, like you said, Paul, the price action, we did see actually a break above that range a little bit. It got above $45,000 a coin. It looks like it's staying there. Hasn't pushed much higher beyond that. And I think it was last week that we were having this debate with Matt Miller about whether it's a good or a bad thing that you've really seen the volatility of right. Bitcoin drop off. And I have some new numbers to share. This comes from Mike Regan. He wrote a great column yesterday that if you look at the ratio of Bitcoin's realized volatility to TLT, it's that long bond, uh, long treasury ETF. It's fallen to less than 1.5 versus seven just oh. six weeks ago. Okay. So you've really seen Bitcoin volatility really drop off a cliff, even though it did manage to get a little bit out of that range. It hasn't gotten much Do we, do we know that. why? Is it, does it mean like the... The retail investors, the I don't day, think day there's traders? that for a Y. Okay, Bitcoin. <laughs> Bitcoin. That's probably true. Yeah, no, but you have seen some enthusiasm come out of the space. The fact that you saw that big drawdown from uh, basically November until February, I think that washed out a lot of positions. Okay. That's what I've been hearing. It really flushed out a lot of those retail players who haven't really come back into the market. You do hear about some big buys. I mean, MicroStrategy was out yesterday with an announcement that um, they would lever up to borrow more Bitcoin, but maybe those retail participants aren't there like they were maybe six months ago. I'm curious, the focus has been a lot on Bitcoin. I was watching Ethereum, which hasn't quite, you know, sort of recouped a lot of the losses the way we saw with Bitcoin regaining some of the the year-to-date losses. Ethereum has too, but you just don't quite hear about it the way we have about Bitcoin. Ethereum is funny. I mean, crypto in general is funny, where Bitcoin, it's supposed to be this magnificent store of value. It really acts like a leveraged tech stock. And then Ethereum, there is a lot of excitement uh, around the Ethereum blockchain, but Ether, the token, more than anything, it acts like a leveraged bet on Bitcoin. So it's interesting that uh, in this rebound that we've seen in the crypto space, it's really been Bitcoin-led, not Ethereum. I'm going to be interested 
interested to see if those correlations ever break apart at some point, because you do have some different fundamentals on those blockchains, but the tokens just trade in tandem. You hear that? Fundamental. I said yes, it. I Shocker. I said it. Where are we? Now, there was a hack, right, on one yes. of these crypto things. So now now I know it's a real asset class when we start about talking about hacks. What happened there? There are more and more hacks. So this is really interesting. It involves what's known as a bridge, which basically lets you move tokens from one blockchain to another. So think, you know, it's pretty hard to move uh, money from Venmo to PayPal. This is basically a bridge that kind of connects okay. the different blockchains so you can move money around. But you're seeing more and more hacks of these bridges. You saw one in February with Wormhole. You saw another one, uh, news of this break yesterday. It actually took six days for them to uncover this hack. And let me just explain what it was. So there's this play to earn game called Axie Infinity. And what we learned yesterday was that hackers stole about $600 million worth of tokens from the blockchain network connected to that game, specifically from the bridge that connects it. And again, it took six days for them to yep. uncover this. So that's a lot of money. So hold on. So you could argue that the thesis of Ethereum or Bitcoin or the blockchain is still intact because that is supposed to be sort of right, this decentralized, unhackable, if you will, in quotes. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they can say it was the bridge and not like the underlying blockchain, mm -hmm. does that thesis then still hold up? Yes, I would say that that most people, most of the criticisms I've seen of this is mostly focused on the fact that you have these bridges. Mm. And the problem with these bridges is that the computer code that makes them work, it, it isn't audited. So basically these hackers are finding ways to exploit that computer code in the way it's written. So you could form an argument that is it really a hack if we're just following the code? Uh, I think a lot of people would say that yes, you are hacking it, but again, it's in the code. They're finding these exploits that let them basically siphon these coins out of the bridges. All right, we have a Federal Reserve here that is uh, raising interest rates and pretty significantly. Do we have any idea how crypto broadly defined can and will or could perform in this type of environment? It's a great question because the last time the Fed really uh, was raising rates in 2018, that's when the last cycle ended. I mean, Bitcoin was less than $5,000 a coin. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't in the mainstream like it is now. So I think this is the biggest test that okay. we're coming up, a real full-blown rate hiking cycle. I mean, if Bitcoin continues to have the same properties that it does now, where it's just a leverage bet on tech stocks, you would think that would be bad news for the price of Bitcoin. But I mean, we've seen tech stocks completely defy that logic. So I cannot wait for seen. Paul to go back to his desk and try to figure out <laughs> the discount rate to plug into the cash exactly. flows to get the present value of Bitcoin. If you could let me know, that <laughs> yeah. would be really helpful. I'll fashion a whole article out of it. Yeah, exactly. We'll have to see. I mean, again, Bitcoin uh, kind of steady today. Uh, still $47,000 per token. And we quote it just like we quote equities and fixed income. It's an asset class to me. That's why I always keep it front and center here. Uh, Jamie Diamond, I know is still a little uh, skittish about it, but uh, just and you talk to the younger folks in finance, this is it. Mm -hmm. Crypto is it. Yeah. I mean, it is you. Yeah, it's not going away. So you got to get uh, in front of it, I think. Uh, and I think the regulators are trying to get in front of it, too, because they are not. But uh, you know, the SEC chairman, Gensler, may be focusing on that. All right, Katie Greifeld, thanks so much for joining us. As always, Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter and Bloomberg Quick Take co-anchor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. 
I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.